Hello, and welcome to The Silver King's War. I'm Michael Sievers, the writer, producer, and creator of this podcast series about my father's Second World War as a B-26 bombardier. Today we are in the second act of the first play in this podcast series, which is called The Silver King. In Act 2, Stanley ships to New York, and this scene is called The Latin Quarter, and it begins with Michael, the narrator, Stanley's son. Stanley and John Sherry received their overseas orders in mid-September of 44. They rode a troop train to New York and enjoyed the city with Uncle Mike and Aunt Sylvia Ehrlich, who owned a wholesale sportswear company on West 38th Street and Manhattan's Garment District. But before that ride, the King's summer training program had changed suddenly in June of 44, as he and J.J. were preparing for a heavy bomber assignment. They were at Columbia Army Air Base working on B-17s, but their commanding officer pulled a number of bombardiers, literally, as they were packing, for what they learned in a few days was advanced training on the B-26, the Martin Marauder. The B-26, designed and built by Glenn Martin in Middle River, east of Baltimore, Maryland, was a sleek two-engine medium bomber designed to fly within two miles of the earth beyond the reach of anti-aircraft artillery shells. The B-17 and B-24 were heavy bombers that flew five miles above sea level. The Air Corps released a circular number 39-640 in March of 1939 because the Air Corps required a new sleek strategic bomber and Martin Manufacturing delivered a bid for Model 179 on July 5th. The best of 15 bids, the Corps ordered 201 Model 179 planes in August of 39 from the Middle River operations. Two days before the initial Air Corps order, Enrico Fermi and Edward Teller visited Albert Einstein at his Long Island, New York summer home. The world's atomic energy race loomed as Germany prepared to invade Poland. The president, FDR, appointed an advisory committee on uranium in October of 39. France surrendered to Germany the following June. The Marauder design and production sequence was quick. The first plane flew on November 29th of 1940. There was no prototype. The early training missions were difficult, and men died trying to fly it. The Air Corps accepted the B-26 in February of 41, and Congress grounded the plane in April of 41. FDR had announced an all-out effort on atomic energy research on December 6th of that year. The Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor the following day, and a B-26 bomber group shipped to Australia on December 8th of 41. When Stanley and John Sherry reached Barksdale Army Airfield in Shreveport, Louisiana, it was late June, and the B-26 was a hot plane that men wanted to ride. The Marauder by mid-44 was a plane that Martin Manufacturing had modified through a series of important changes to tires, landing gear, rivets, wing size, armor plates, fuel systems, and machine guns. D-Day was June 6th of 44. 
and the infantry with Air Corps support is moving steadily east through France. They will liberate Paris in August. Stanley and J.J. spent two horribly hot months at Barksdale. Their path from South Carolina to this backwater replacement depot was all timing and fate. They were flying cross-country training, delivery runs. A May flight to Omaha included a flap problem and diversion to St. Louis, and this meant nights at the Hotel Mayfair and club scenes with Mom Phillips. This amazing and wonderful monotony break, which the King described in a long letter, ironically meant that Stanley's bombardier class shipped to New York without him. He lacked the required mission time. Then the Air Corps commanders wrote orders that only celestial navigation units will fly the B-25. And on June 2nd, the King was taken off shipment and his crew. His June 12th orders are for Barksdale and the B-26. This will be the best job of their lives and meant their chance of surviving the war improved dramatically. This is General Dwight David Eisenhower, who was the supreme Allied commander in the European theater. I, as the supreme Allied commander of the expeditionary forces, had selected the B-26 to be the Pathfinder planes for the invasion. The Pathfinders, equipped with oboe radar systems, were used for night and bad weather operations to mark targets for the heavy bombers. And Stanley, the Silver King, was in the 9th Air Force of a European unit that flew Pathfinders. On June 5th of 44, I was preparing to send Allied troops across the English Channel to France with a force that would push the German army deeper into Eastern Europe. 5,000 ships waited to transport over 150,000 soldiers to France before daybreak the following morning. The fighting to take Normandy was brutal, epic, and changed the war. The men assaulted beaches filled with tangled barbed wire, minefields and booby traps, and defended by German soldiers in concrete bunkers. The afternoon of June 5th, as the Allied soldiers' faces darkened with soot and cocoa, waited to board their ships, I visited them to offer quiet words and prayers. I was sending our nation's sons, brothers, husbands, and fathers into harm's dark void. 10,000 American soldiers died during the first waves of Operation Overlord. I had written a first letter describing the operation's success on the road to a World War II victory. But after meeting the Allied invasion forces, I wrote a second letter, accepting blame for a failed mission. I wrote, Our landings in the Cherbourg-Havre area have failed to gain a satisfactory foothold, and I have withdrawn the troops. My decision to attack at this time and place was based upon the best information available. The troops, the air, and the navy did all that bravery and devotion to duty could do. If any blame or fault attaches to the attempt, it is mine alone. The Allied Operation Overlord was a success and launched the final assault in which Western democracy, led by courageous men and women, would destroy European fascism. And I, a humble son of Kansas and West Point, 
was described as a conquering hero by the spring of 1945 and was welcomed home to New York City's Canyon of Heroes as the man who had led the Allies to victory in Europe and won World War II. Seven years later, in 1952, after both the Democrats and Republicans asked me to be their candidate, I would win the first of two consecutive conservative terms as the 34th President of the United States. This is Michael reading one of his father's letters, this one dated Monday, September 5th, 1944, from Atlanta, Georgia. Dearest ones, by this time you probably believe I'm well on my way to places unknown. It's just as much a surprise to find myself here in Atlanta as it will be to you. I've been here since Saturday and am returning to Savannah tomorrow. We've been having a marvelous time on our last flying, and Atlanta is quite the place to have it. I know you're anxious to know the details, so here goes. We arrived at Savannah safe, but with headaches, around Thursday noon. It was really a wild train ride as we stayed drunk practically all the way. Dad, I think the only time we were sober is when you saw me Wednesday morning. Everyone had a bottle, and some had two. Besides that, we had a six-hour delay in Columbus and took the town over completely. The people there knew the Air Corps had been in town. We were threatened with jail by the police, and the railroad almost refused our ride. Our two cars were hooked to a civilian train, and the group kept trying to go up with the civilians. Believe me, it was a mess. I drank enough to last a long time. We found Savannah very crowded. I've never seen so many planes on one field, every type and model but the B-26s. That's why they gave us a three-day pass. They didn't have room for us nor the time to process us. Processing is the same old routine, only we are issued all our flying equipment. I am due back tomorrow by midnight. We will probably be processed right away, which only takes two days. It is a wonderful organization once they get started. I expect to be on my way by Friday. I saw Bill a couple of times before he left. He left Friday for the port of embarkation in New Jersey, as he is going to England by boat. Nobody is flying over in B-26s, it seems. That means there are enough planes already over there, and there is no need for any more. So, it looks like I'll be taking a boat ride after all. And remember, mum's the word. Dad, it was swell saying goodbye to you. I'm sorry I didn't get to see you, mother. I was afraid to talk to you and tell you to come down as you never know who was watching, and I could have gotten in plenty of trouble. It always pays to play safe. I'll write again if I get the chance before I leave the country, and if not, I'll send you a cable when I arrive at my destination. Take care of yourselves. Don't worry about me. The war will be over soon. I'll probably never even see any action. Love to Ida. I love and miss you. Stan. This is Michael, before the lights go up, admiring his father's love of the party life. Stanley, John Sherry, Mike, and Sylvia Ehrlich are sitting at a four-top table in the Latin Quarter nightclub. The club opened at 47th and Broadway in 1942, and Sylvia, Stanley's favorite, was the youngest sister on his mother Sarah's side. 
there is plenty of great music, and the club is lively. The King and J.J. have been on the town every night, almost. Stanley was on pass, and he arrived late one night and was restricted to post for punishment. But this was the Silver King, now 21, enjoying a big city taste before his war became real. The Latin Quarter is alive with music, dancers, cocktails, clothes, and women. A world away for moments from the chaos to come. The lights go up on scene five, and this is Aunt Sylvia Ehrlich. Stanley, it's wonderful to have you in the city. Your friend, Second Lieutenant Sherry, is quite a guy. How did you meet? And the king, we rode the train to Nashville in January 43. The seat next to him was empty. I sat. We shared a smoke in our dreams. J.J. Sherry. Ironic that we both washed out of pilot school and met again in Carlsbad for bombardier training. The alphabet connected us, and soon it will be our war. Uncle Mike. What can you tell us about your B-26 assignment? We've read about the plane, its history and improvements. And the king. I apologize, Uncle Mike, but we can't say much about our work. We trained on bigger bombers in South Carolina and got shipped to Shreveport for the B-26. I'm sure Mother told you about her call to my commanding officer. And this is Aunt Sylvia looking almost shocked. Oh, Stanley, no. I'm so sorry. Sarah Bell is really something. She's the commanding officer of the Lipschitz family army. Why did she call your commanding officer? And J.J. Sherry bemused. Yes, King. Tell us why your mother called the CO. There we were, poolside. It's hot as hell. And the desk officer dashes up. Hey, Silverfield, your mother's on the phone. Your face turned pale in the bright sun. And the king, almost ashamed. That was brutal. I'm an Air Corps officer, and my mother calls Shreveport. There was nowhere to hide, so I sprinted to the shade, composed myself, and caught hell from Birmingham. And Sylvia, looking at the king, and what did she say, Stanley? And the king, responding, oh, she was mad, made it clear that I must keep her current. She didn't care about my circumstances. I tried to explain the situation, but she was having none of it. And Aunt Sylvia, your mother has a legendary temper. I feel sorry for your commanding officer. I'm sure he caught hell, too. And the king, he did. Then I did. Three times. I paid a steep price for that call. Mother ordered more calls from me. But my CEO, of course, said he didn't want anything more from Birmingham. The guys were relentless. Everywhere it was, hey, King, your mother's on the line. This King isn't a mother's boy. J.J. Sherry, King, I remember our trip from Carlsbad to Columbia. Colonel Ryan told us to enjoy it and to be careful in the nightclubs. As Air Corps bombardiers, he said, the other bees that we might avoid were booze, broads, bouncers, and brawls. He never mentioned mothers.
and the Silver King. All very true. He said our legendary local battlefields may include New York City and Chicago nightclub kitchens. And yes, they have been the scenes of epic engagements. We managed to enjoy all of it and remain unscathed as the lights go down. This is Michael reading a letter his father wrote from the deep summer in Shreveport, Louisiana on Tuesday, July 18th of 1944. Dearest ones, I'm terribly sorry that you worried so about me. It really wasn't necessary for you to call or wire. You should have known I would have written sooner if I had the time and energy. It is so unbearably hot here that it's impossible to sit still long enough to write. We can't go to bed until very late, as it takes the barracks that long to cool off. I'll try to write as often as I can, but don't expect too much. I'm really surprised you were able to reach me on the phone. As you know, I'm no longer in the replacement depot. They usually don't bother to look for you. When you called, we were sitting on the grass outside the barracks, trying to cool off. That's where I am now. I would be swimming, but I'm sore from sunburn. I haven't done any flying yet. At first, J.J. and I were assigned to different squadrons, which I disapproved of. I went to the captain, gave him a long story, and now he's changed us to the same one. Since we roomed together, I figure we might as well fly together. This delayed us somewhat, and I won't meet my crew until tomorrow. I'll probably fly tomorrow afternoon. J.J. is flying tonight. Also, tomorrow we have a proficiency exam in navigation. If I pass it, I won't have to go to ground school. Right now, I feel as though I've forgotten everything. No more news for now. I hope you're well, and you won't forget the $20. Love to Ida. I love and miss you, Stan. This is the end of Scene 5 in The Silver King. And you are listening to The Silver King's War.